Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Who loves a good list? Tanil and I have been married for 25 years, and at any point during those 25 years, if you were to have walked into our house on our counter, you would have found lists, because Tanil loves Lists. We have lists of fall projects, lists of groceries, lists of things we should think about. Probably some lists of lists that we should make as well. And even I, Mr. Loose on the details and, hey, let's fly by the seat of our pants. Even I have been known to make a few lists. Who loves a good list? You know, lists can actually be incredibly helpful, right? They can clarify for us What's important? Uh, They can help us sift through when we're feeling overwhelmed. It can lower our anxiety when we feel like we have too much going on. We sit down and we write a list. It can help us define what's important and when it's important and when we don't want to forget the thing that is important. A good list can help us when we're trying to make some decisions, right? We make a pros list. We make a cons list. We compare them. They can even help us work through what's going on in a complex situation, even a complex relational situation. A good list can help us when we're struggling in our faith, when we're trying to figure out what's going on inside or we're feeling unsure about something. We can make a list of, well, what do we know is true? What are we sure of? Or maybe a list of, what are the questions that I'm struggling with? Or what's bothering me. A good list can be incredibly helpful. Well, if you like a good list, you're in great company because none other than the Apostle Paul himself is a man who loves good lists. Paul is the writer of about half of the New Testament. 13 of the 27 uh, books in the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul himself. And if you read through his 13 letters. You will find lists everywhere. You'll find spiritual gifts lists. You'll find fruits of the spirit lists. You'll find thinking lists. You'll find sins lists. You'll find love lists. You'll find more spiritual gift lists. Uh, You'll find hardship lists and lots and lots of people lists. Paul loves himself a good list. And today, at the very crescendo of Romans chapter 8, Paul wraps up the whole section of his letter, really from 5 to 8, but particularly in 8, not only with the most wonderful poetry, but a couple of epic lists as well. Lists that drive home the most central, crystallizing, confidence-building truth of our lives, that we are inseparably loved by God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I hope you're ready to dive in to these lists today. Let's pray as we continue. 
Holy Spirit of God, we are here today to receive from you. Would you open our hearts and minds so that we can hear and respond to this powerful truth? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the first list that we discovered today is a list of questions, rhetorical questions that Paul piles on to draw together powerful truths that we've already been discovering so far in our journey through Romans 8. Question number one one is found in verse 31 of chapter 8, and it begins like this. What then shall we say in response to these things? That's question number one. What things, you ask? Well, all the things that we've been hearing so far. I mean, you could just talk about the things we've heard so far in Romans chapter 8, that we're condemnation-free in Christ Jesus, that we're filled with the Spirit of God, that we're led by the Spirit of God, that we're children of God, and we've been adopted by Him, that the Holy Spirit lives in us and prays for us and groans from within us according to the will of God, that that God is able to take anything and everything in our lives and work it out for our good. That's all of these things that Paul is referring to. And he's asking, what can we say in response to them all? But he doesn't want us to answer quite yet because he piles immediately on with a second question and it's designed to sharpen our response. Second question, if God is for us, who can be against us? I love that question. I've talked before how the word if here grammatically isn't asking a question. It's not a, oh, is this really true? Like if, maybe, if, like it's a question. No, the if that's here is, is, is assuming that something is true. It could be just as easily translated the word since. Since God is for us. If God is for us. This is representing a fact. And all that we've been hearing has been piled home here and reinforced with steel. This fundamental truth, God is for us. God is for you. That God is good, that God is trustworthy, that God is loyal, that God is faithful, and God is for us. And since that is true, well, the question is, who can be against us? I love it. And so what's our response? We're meant to kind of shout it out right here at the beginning, right at this point. Who could be against us? No one. I mean, come on. Who could possibly be against us? If all of this is true, since all of this is true, since the creator and sustainer of the universe has set his love upon us, doing everything that was necessary to restore our friendship with him, to bring us into his family, giving us the Holy Spirit, making us an heir with Jesus Christ himself. I mean, who could mess with that? What's our response? Nobody. No one can mess with that. Paul immediately raises a third question. Now, he does this first by alluding to an ancient story, an epic story, found in Genesis chapter 22, the, the, the famous story where Abraham is tested by God and told to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. But this is only a test of obedience. God never intended Abraham to follow through with it. God hates human sacrifice, always has, always will. 
but it's a test of obedience. And just before Abraham goes through with it, the angel of the Lord steps in and stops Abraham. I'm reading from Genesis 22, verse 12 through 14. The angel said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you, listen to this language, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That whole story from Genesis 22 points us forward to a greater sacrifice that's coming. And that's why Paul immediately reads, uh, listen, listen to what he says in verse 32. He, referring to God the Father, he who did not spare, withhold, his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then here's the third question in the list. How will he not also, along with him, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? And the answer is, well, of course he will. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus. God gave up Jesus for us. He's not going to start withholding from us now. If he never held back by giving up his own son, well, he's going to give us everything that we need along with Jesus. But Paul's making a list. The rapid-fire questions just keep coming. He's building fast and furious. He's not really trying to introduce new truth here at the end. He's just taking what we already know is true. A lot of what he's already said, and he's driving it home so that we know it, so that we're convinced of it, so it gets down deep. Question number four in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Answer, of course, no one. He immediately follows his question by saying, it is God who justifies. It's God who makes us right. God has set us right through Jesus Christ. We stand in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Who's going to bring any charge against us in light of that truth? Nobody. Nobody could. Who could possibly bring any charge that would measure against the faithfulness of Jesus, against what God has already done to justify us? Are you keeping track? Here's question number five, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? And I think he kind of expects you to look around and realize... Just like the woman who had been caught in adultery, John chapter 8, after all her accusers had left, Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? And she looks around and there aren't any. It's the same for us. Who is going to charge, you know, who is the one who condemns? Answer, no one. And I'm reading He answers it right there. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul's got a full head of steam now, and I don't think there's any stopping him. Look what he does here. He answers his own question with the resounding, No one! And then he lays out in a most succinct way the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus died. Jesus rose. 
Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then, listen to this. Hold on to this. It's super important that we let this captivate our hearts, our minds, our souls. Jesus is also interceding for us. I mean, we often affirm the first two, and maybe the third, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah Jesus, died, rose, and is exalted, sitting at the right hand of the Father. But we must never forget that Jesus isn't just sitting there wondering what to do, twiddling his thumbs till it's done. What we see is that Jesus is not actually done his work for us, that Jesus is active, that Jesus is engaged, that Jesus is constantly leaning over and whispering and speaking to the Father for you, for me. We pray in the name of Jesus, and he speaks in our name to the Father. This is incredible stuff. I mean, is any greater picture of God being for us than this? This intercession bit blows my mind. We've already been told just a few verses ago how the Spirit of God who lives in us, He's always interceding for us, even with groans that cannot be expressed. It's like the Holy Spirit is taking up all the cries, all the heartache, all the confusion of our own lives, and He is interceding for us on our behalf in perfect accordance with the will of God. We've already been told this. I mean, wow, that's incredible. But now we're reminded again that Jesus in Christ is also interceding for us. I mean, can you get anyone else on your side that you'd need? I mean, how much more for us could God possibly be? Because think about it. Who are the Holy Spirit and the Son of God interceding to? Like, who are they speaking Not God the Father who's sitting there with his arms crossed and doesn't want to really hear and he thinks we're a bunch of screw-ups anyway and they're having to come, okay, fine. They're not having to convince God the Father to pay attention to us. Think about it. We've already, we just heard it. The Spirit and the Son are interceding to the Father who did what? Who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us. Who sent his Holy Spirit into us so that we could cry out, Abba, Father, who made us joint heirs with his son. I mean, think about it. This is the God who is for us. Friends, I hope you're soaking this in. I hope you're letting this just bathe your heart and your mind. This is pure, unadulterated love where we can be immersed in the goodness of God from which we will never be removed. This is beautiful, life-changing stuff. And that's where Paul presses us on now with his seventh question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Answer? (laughs) No one. He immediately follows with, with, with the next question. Uh, it, it, it kind of finishes the list with, a, with, a, with a, of questions here. Question seven does. But then it doubles. It's a funny thing. It doubles with the start of yet another list where Paul now lists seven things. You wonder if he likes that number. It's like Paul says, okay, let's just make sure we're all getting this down deep. This unshakable He wants us to know how passionately and completely and inseparably loved that we really are. And so Paul says, let's list 
some of the experiences we tend to think indicate that God's love or care for us has somehow slipped. And so he concludes with this list, both questions and now the seventh question and the list. He says, shall trouble? Right? The question is, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Or sword? And there's an invitation here for each one of us. Right now, at this moment, it's like we're being invited. Go ahead and list all the worst things that you could possibly imagine that could happen to you in your life. Go ahead. Let your imagination just roll. Start to make your own list. The question is, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul just takes us through some terrible stuff. We're being invited to make our own list right now. I mean, shall family conflict separate you from the love of Christ? Shall financial failure separate you from the love of Christ? Job loss, will that separate you from his love? Low marks at school? Bad health diagnosis? The loss of a loved one? Will divorce separate you from the love of Christ? Will moral failure separate you from the love of Christ? Will an unfair judgment separate you from the love of Christ? Would a global pandemic separate you from the love of Christ? Would a farm wiped out by floods separate you from the love of Christ? Would a landslide? Would a catastrophe? Would the worst thing that you and I could possibly imagine... Would it separate us? Can it separate us from the love of Christ? Take us through the list. The answer is no. And you know why Paul does that? You know why he makes us think of these things? He lists himself all the worst things that we could possibly imagine. Why? Because there's a consistent error that people have made over and over again. Right back from the time of Job right through to the present time. And it's this. Whenever anything goes wrong in our lives, we assume it's because we deserve it somehow. God is punishing us. We've been forgotten. Or quite simply, God doesn't love us. The whole story of Job is written to counter that false idea. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes there's trouble in our lives because we've asked for it, right? We can all acknowledge that. There are consequences for action. There is hurt that flows from sin. There's times where we've chosen to be selfish and there's results and we've rejected God's good leadership and there's consequences. We can acknowledge that. Of course, we also acknowledge that God uses those consequences to discipline us, to transform us, to help us. Remember, last week, God uses anything and everything to help us become more like Christ, do the good in us. That's all true. And we need to be attentive to the Holy Spirit, right? We need to let God's word shape and reshape our hearts and minds and be open to the ways that we are being invited to change and come under the obedience 
to God. That's all true. But this, my friends, is never true. That the troubles in life would suddenly signal that God's love has failed us. That's never true. But we can often think it. We can begin to interpret the things that are going on in our lives or around us as somehow a sign that God has forgotten us, that we are no longer loved, that we are not God's children after all. And what Paul wants us to hear, what I want you to hear, what the Scripture clearly declares is that God's love is non-negotiable. It's already been set in Christ. It's already been given by the Spirit. And that's why Paul goes on to pull this kind of weird quote from Psalm 44. He quotes it. He says, as it is written, for your sake, he's referring to God, God's sake, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In this original context, the psalmist is crying out to God because they're facing real trouble. But unlike many times in their history as God's people, the troubles they're facing are specifically not because they've been unfaithful to God, but because they've actually been faithful to God's covenant. And that's why Paul uses this psalm here. That's why he pulls this quote. He wants to underscore the fact that troubles are not a sign that we are not loved by God. In fact, for your sake, Paul says, Paul quotes, the very troubles we're experiencing can be happening precisely because we are now the loved, spirit-filled children of God who live in this daily tension between the new creation work of the Spirit that is growing within us and the old sinful patterns of this world that are soon coming to an end. The the difficulties we face are a reminder that we do live in a groaning, broken world, that we still live in groaning, broken bodies. And yet, that groaning, now joined by the Holy Spirit, is a sign of our hope in God's glory coming. The truth is, we live in this tension. We are God's spirit people, but we are not yet resurrected. We live along this fault line between the dying old creation kingdom and the resurrection new creation kingdom of God. And that pressure we experience right where there's the, those two uh, tectonic plates meet, the pressure we experience is actually a sign of who we belong to now, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question is, can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no. No one. Nothing. Nobody. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all what things? Well, all the things that have been listed, the trouble, the hardship, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the the danger, the sword, all the worst things that you and I could ever imagine, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's building to a crescendo now. He's reaching a fever pitch. He's like standing on his chair and he's getting really loud. And so in one of the most powerful, passionate, and poetic lists of all times, Paul takes us home. He says, for I am convinced 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you see this list? Let's just quickly go through it again. Neither death nor life. It kind of covers everything, but death can represent not just the death we think of in the coffin, but the things in life that represent evil and suffering and hardship, that represent relational death, mental death, financial death, the, the death that we see going on around us, as well as life itself. This is an overarching statement. Neither death nor life. But then he reaches to the unseen realms, angels, demons. And I know that in our day and age, we don't think about these powers very much. But for most of history, an awareness that there were spiritual forces going on all around us that influenced us, that were often malicious, malevolent, against us, and were out to ruin us, was much higher on people's radar. And Paul immediately is saying, look at all those spiritual forces that are beyond our view, beyond our understanding, that are potentially influencing or even against us. No, they can't separate us from God's love either. Neither the present nor the future. In other words, what's going on in your life right now, the struggle you're experiencing, the mess you're in, as well as all the potential things that could happen in your life going forward things you're aware of and worry about, things you're not aware of and worry about, whatever is going to happen, can anything happen that would separate you from the love of God? Paul's trying to drive this home. The answer is no, nor any powers. And probably when he's referring to powers here, he's referring to things like, yes, the principalities and powers of this world, but he's probably referring to governments, institutions, educational establishments, cultural movements, political ideologies. Can any of that separate us from the love of Christ? Neither height nor depth. Now, he could be referring to anything like, uh, you know, astrological signs that they believed in. He could be referring to the psychological depths of the human heart. But I like to think of it as he's just covering all his bases. Whether you go up high or you go down low, you're not going to find anything that can separate you from the love of Christ. But just to cap it off, just to make sure he's covering everything, he stops his list, finalizes the list by saying, nor anything else in all creation. It's kind of like, look, did I not cover something for you? Is there still something on the corner of your mind? Something that you want to bring up? Some idea that there's this? Yeah, but what about this? Oh, I, I, did you think of this? It's like at this point in the list, Paul's saying, look, I've given you a blank here. Why don't you just fill in whatever else it is you think could possibly separate you from the love of Christ. You just go ahead and fill that in, and I'm just going just gonna to say, yeah, that too. Nothing else. Nothing else in all of creation, nor anything else, will be able to separate you, separate me, separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are totally and completely and utterly, irrevocably, inseparably loved by God. I hope you can believe that today. I hope you can let that set deep in. I hope this can be the center from which you live. 
each and every day, moment by moment, you are inseparably loved. Well, how do we implement this? Well, I'm going to suggest we make some lists. Lists, as I already said, are especially good when you're anxious or feeling worried or stressed or depressed or discouraged or confused, lonely, angry, uh, isolated, overwhelmed, distressed. Lists help. And I don't know where you find yourself today, but I'm suspecting that all of us can be described in one of those categories. So how are we going to implement this? Let's make some lists. Verse 1, taking right from Romans 8, make a troubles list. Maybe you've already started to do this as we're going through this, but I invite you as your first action step for this week, make a troubles list. What are the experiences that shake you up and make you doubt God's faithful love for you? What are the experiences that shake you up and make you doubt God's faithful love for you? Be honest about it. Name it. Write them down. Paul gives you some prompts here in Romans 8. And you can go through them. You can take the seven questions he asked. You can take these lists of the worst possible experiences and start fleshing out, well, what would nakedness look like in my life? Or what would, what would peril look like? What would danger look like? What would sword look like? Well, what does it mean to, to experience these different worst possible scenarios? Write it out. Start to name with clarity the kind of experiences that in your life or in your past or even today make you doubt the faithful love of God. So as you do that, I'm hoping that as you see these troubles, these experiences that tend to shake you up, you'll hear it the way that we already heard it going through Romans 8. That after each one, you want to ask the question, can this separate me from the love of Christ? No. How about this? Nope. How about this over here? Nope. This? Nope. Just nope it all. You know, just go through the list. Nope, 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 nope. Because the second list you want to move to is a confidence list. You've written your troubles list. Now write a confidence list. This list might be a few lists, I'll be honest, but it's where we try to expand what's true now. What's true now? Because of what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done and are doing for you, in you. What's true? Under this confidence list, a few sublists, it might be the first one is what's true of God? What's true of the Father? What's true of the Son? What's true of the Holy Spirit? I invite you to search the Gospels, search the Scripture, pray through this, talk to a spiritual friend. Just dig through Romans 8 again and make a list. What's true of God? What's true? Second, what's true of you? Based on the teaching here in Romans 8, you can sort of imagine yourself with a name tag. My name is. But instead of writing your own name, begin to think, well, who am I? Based on the teaching of Romans 8, I am 
condemnation free. I am a child of the Father. I am loved, inseparably loved. I am interceded for. I am more than a conqueror. Listen, you go through Romans 8. You begin to write down what's true of you based on what God has done for you in Jesus and he's doing for you now by the Holy Spirit. What's true of you? For the final sub-list, I'm not giving you too much stuff. This is something you can work on each day of the week coming forward. I invite you to brainstorm, maybe with a friend, maybe with a spouse. Maybe you can even do this over email or Facebook. But brainstorm this. What are 20 ways, so take your piece of paper and write 1 through 20, and brainstorm a list. What are 20 ways that I can keep these truths, the truths of who God is and who I am, these truths front and center in my life in the coming days? What are 20 ways, 20 creative, innovative, strange ways, but real practical ways that I can keep these truths about who I am and who God is front and center in my life? I mean, there's the classic post-it note on the mirror while you brush your teeth. Go ahead, do that, please. Make that, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Number one, post-it note on the mirror. But you know, you can set alarms in your phones. You can write out a bunch of notes and get your family, get one of your kids to hide them around the house. You can put stuff in your sock drawer. You can put stuff in your shoes. You can can hide things out in your shop. You can send yourself emails by delay so they show up in your box next week. Hey, you can think of so many creative, innovative ideas that maybe you'll go past 20. But think of at least 20 ways that you can keep the truth of who you are and who God is front and center in your life. Friends, I'm so excited that we've been able to spend all of this time in Romans chapter 8, living from this center. And my hope and prayer for you, for the Erickson Covenant Church, for you who are exploring faith, seeking truth, trying to figure out what life means, my hope and prayer for each and every one of us is that we live from this very center, that we are inseparably loved by the God of of the universe, the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us and has given to us the gift of his Holy Spirit who lives with us now. That we would understand and revel in the fact that God is with us and we can live from this center. We can love from this center. We can share from this center, work from this center, sleep from this center. That in every way, our lives can be shaped by this central truth that we are inseparably loved by this God. And that from that center, we can tell others. We can reveal to others through our daily witness of life and love that there's a God who loves others. God who loves them. A God who has given himself up completely for this groaning world and is bringing about the restoration he desires for all. For his love is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell.
His love goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Let's sing our response to His love now. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.